0: You have reached a phone call from Paul, a Literary Hub podcast.
1: To hear more, visit lethub.com. Paul Holden Graver's conversation with Pico Ear. Hello? Hello, is this Pico? how, how nice to, to how nice to hear your voice. It's been so long. What Too what, long, yes. what am I catching you in the middle of? What am I interrupting apart from the fact that we are having this phone call. <laughs>
0: emerged from all unlikely places from a zen monastery about 24 hours ago and i'm flying to london uh tomorrow morning so i suppose i'm somewhere between nirvana and samsara um but uh, that's otherwise known as santa barbara california the haggard uh haggard
1: babylon but but this is um this is your state pico somewhere in between
0: and yours exactly so, I mean we're neighbors in this state, and uh, the state is more and more populous because I feel that your your children's generation especially are going to find it ever harder to identify themselves because they're from so many places all at once, but you're right, you and I were um were there before it became fashionable well, uh, well
1: yes and, and in 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 some sense you know uh, that that space is what one could call uh, you know en route. Um, we're always, we're always somewhere between here and there. But I want to hear about the there you just emerged from, the, the monastery. I, I didn't catch where it was and for how long you were there. And what, in fact, if one can say something of this nature, what did you do there?
0: Yes, this is Tassahara Monastery, which is the first uh, Zen training monastery outside Japan ever set up 50 years ago. It's in Carmel Valley, California, reached by a 17-mile dirt road. So really, not the kind of place where I'm usually to be found. But uh, two years ago in San Francisco, I met a Zen abbess uh, who presides over um, a a brother temple to this one. And she asked me... um, to come and join her in teaching a workshop. So we did that last year and we just did that this week. Uh, Because I think she noticed that her meditation practice and my description of my writing day sounded almost interchangeable. So although I've never meditated and I don't know much about Zen, my describing my writing life sounded to her like what she does in her dark robes. And so uh, we were leading a workshop of 20 people for the last four days called Facing the Flames, which I think initially refers to the flames that encircle the house where I'm sitting and regularly encircle this monastery in the wild hills of California. Uh, She said it also refers to facing the flames of anger and hatred and envy, especially in our confused times. And I think most of all, for me, it was about being in act four of life thinking about Act 5, and I know you've dealt with this, but you've lost three close family members in recent years. So my feeling was that so many of us in our generation are dealing with Aging parents and the prospect of being aging for a long time ourselves, and so that was one of the things I wanted to describe as the flames that await us, whether in heaven or
1: hell. Well, 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 for sure, uh, Pico. Um, these losses uh, have multiplied themselves in in our lives, and as you as you said in, in in mine, it it really has in a short period of time. I'm wondering though, um, how you said in in a way your knowledge of Zen is is not a deep knowledge, though I probably imagine it's a much deeper knowledge than most people have. But in some sense, you said that there was a recognition that between the way um, the Zen masters teach their own work and the way you write, there is some similarity um can you can you express what that might be because i'm i'm not sure i completely know and i know that i would like to know
0: <laughs> i know i apologize it was a nomic thing to say but uh, two years ago when i first met her i told her that every morning i wake up in our tiny apartment in japan and i go to a corner and i essentially just sit there for the next 5 hours trying to sift through my projections my distortions trying to find voice behind my chatter, trying to find, of all the things that are passing through my head, whether there's anyone worth committing to the page. As my experiences of recent days go through me, as a writer, I'm committed to trying to kind of cut through the many silly or surface things one would say or find about them and, um, and see if there's anything more durable in there. And so she, when she heard that, she said, well, goodness, that's, very much what we do in our Zen practice, not so much in teaching, but just the meditation process is about, I gather, um, sitting still for a long time, watching one's thoughts come and go like clouds across the sky, and occasionally uh, trying to find um, blue sky behind the clouds. So. You know, as you know, the writing job has many occupational hazards, but it struck me that one of the few advantages it has is that it does allow you to sort through your experience uh, for a living. Uh, and especially nowadays as the world gets so full of acceleration and distraction, and I think so much of the time we're racing from soundbite to text message to CNN breaking news update. The luxury of spending five hours a day just stepping back from that clamor, trying to gain clarity, is um, a huge one, so I'm grateful to
1: be a writer in that way so you 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 manage attention, you manage to be attentive um you manage to be five hours away from any interference.
0: Well that's so beautifully said, and that's certainly the aim I can't say that I manage it very often, but just the attempt to put myself for five hours away from television or potential cell phone or laptop makes my day seem much larger and more spacious and really makes me much happier than i were if i were trying to keep up with a moment that i never could keep up but i I love the way you you said instantly i mean you cut to the kernel of it managing attention and attentiveness and i know Nowadays, a lot of people talk about this phrase, the attention economy. And I think it's a good one because so many things are fighting for our attention. And the one loser, it tends to be ourselves because we don't necessarily have time to attend to what we most want to, whether it's our um, our, our children, our deepest thoughts, our, our passions. So those five R's at least give me a, a step in the right direction away from TMZ
1: and and CN. But one one might actually say that our deepest thoughts can only be accessed if one creates that space and that to some extent the non-creation of that space, the fact that we're, you know, to quote T. S. Eliot, we're really distracted from distraction by distraction, is maybe um there. It's a ploy in some way to keep us away from the wildness and also the, the the danger of accessing our deepest thoughts, our deepest uh, ruminations, and perhaps even our deepest desires. So so wonderfully said, Paul. That,
0: exactly. You couldn't have expressed my, my fear and abiding concern better. Um, exactly so. And I, I found that, for example, uh, the only way I could possibly learn to read the world is by by reading books and engaging in that very intimate, deep conversation that a real book offers. And so, just as you were saying, when, when I moved to this little <laughs> rented two-room apartment in Japan in the middle of nowhere, where i would never used a cell phone and I can't understand TV and very little comes in on me, it was entirely to, in the hope that I wouldn't lose contact with as you said so well, uh, my, my deepest longings, my my closest friends, the things I care about most, that they wouldn't get lost in the, in the pile on my desk, as it were, or in the clutter in my schedule, and that I could try to cut through the noise in my life um, a little bit by doing that. And so, because my days in Japan tend to last a long time, I go out into our tiny terrace with a cup of tea and a few sweet Japanese tangerines every afternoon, and I spend one hour just reading a book, either a, a, a novel or a substantial work of nonfiction. And really, I'm amazed at the end of that hour, I do feel so much deeper than when I'm just racing around Times Square or doing the kind of stuff I would do otherwise. And I feel more intimate and I feel as if, as I say, I've emerged from a conversation with a really soulful, challenging, interesting friend, whether that friend is called Emily Dickinson or um Sadie Smith and um it's a treat and and i I find when i'm back in santa barbara where you find me now i I do get caught up in the distractions and racing from a to b and losing myself and everything that i might have to share with my friends in the process and um as you know and i think all of us are feeling those distractions you mentioned are getting more and more intense over the last 15 years, and they're not going to go away or get less intense, which is why I think so many people are sort of reaching out for any way they can open some space in their heads or their their lives um, to access just what you called, you know, the, the
1: best part of us. Well, you know, people.
0: I think, it, as, as I say that, I suddenly realised. I think most of us, certainly I, am happiest when I'm most absorbed in something. When I completely forget the time and I'm lost in a deep conversation or an intimate encounter, or a film or a concert, or whatever. That's when um, I, I feel richest, and I'm least happy when I'm all over the place and uh, doing a thousand things at once. And and so, just the moot the, the attempt to try to be in one place at at one time. Um, Seemed to well, to
1: me. well it, it, I mean, so many thoughts come to my mind. One of them, before we talk about how literature might repair the world, is your—I mean—you a, 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 express a longing, um, a longing for immersion, a longing for being at one with something, a longing for true passions to overcome to overtake you, but also what what strikes me, and perhaps what uh, brought you to the monastery um, that you just left, is the fact that it feels as though your life is highly ritualized. There are these rituals that include a tangerine, a cup of tea, and an hour, <laughs> hour of reading a book, be it Zadie Smith or Emily Dickinson. <laughs> Very
0: no, you're absolutely right. Uh, and um, and I think a writer's life tends to be ritualized. I know you've talked to so many writers on stage and in this series of conversations, and I'm sure all of them have their, their favorite pen or their favorite time of day or their favorite superstitions, uh, as do musicians or athletes, whatever. Um, but you're right. My, my life is ritualized, uh, probably to a fault, but with a view to um, making sure there's time for... In- intimacy and um, and that rich attention you you were speaking to. So my illusion, at least, is that um, if I follow these certain patterns and every day will have its three or four hours to get lost in, and certainly my five hours of death, I'm constantly
1: lost. I mean, those are very open hours where anything can happen or not happen. Well, you know, I, I as you know, I suffer from this disease called Quotomania, and I can't keep myself from quoting... Uh, a line from Simon Veil vale that I've quoted so many times, but seems so apt. Uh, quotations for me are, are really signposts in in my life. Uh, Simon Veil vale once said that attention is a form of prayer. And it, uh, Paul, you
0: just quoted the line that was going to be the epigraph to my next book that line has been
1: a sort of um a talisman for me for forever i think it's from gravity and grace it is and uh, i agree and 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 the
0: beauty of that comment is it it makes secular that i mean i i'm not interested in religion as such but i am interested in 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 attention and um she wonderfully makes the depths available even to those of us in the in the secular world but yes thank you that that
1: that quote has well, always been so clear. well you you must use it in the next book and obviously i'm i'm intrigued by that but rather than just talking about your next book immediately which would be a natural a natural way to c- pursue this conversation now on the phone i'm interested in both the 5 hours you spend and also that one hour, which may end up being longer than that, I imagine it is really shorter, where you're absorbed in in a work of of fiction or an essay. I imagine uh, your tastes are, are far ranging. I, I think you're a man of appetite, so I would imagine that you you there are many many different kinds of books you read, short stories and very long Russian novels. I'm I'm just curious what value you place in literature to help us make sense of this chaos uh, we live in. Um, Somehow, sometimes I feel that we, we live our lives between chaos and entropy, and perhaps literature comes in as a way of sorting things out and making us feel, at least for a moment, that the world is possible to comprehend.
0: Exactly. So as perfectly said, I, I'm a I'm a great basketball fan. And although I'm happy to see kids playing on a, a back lot in Santa Barbara, being a basketball fan, um, I am most excited when I'm watching LeBron James and Kevin Durant. Um, when I want to find out how to deal with an aging parent what to do with the prospect of death how to sift through the distortions that um, I entertain when I'm in love then I want to turn to the LeBron James's of his, of thinking and, and writing and that's exactly where literature comes in I mean to make this more precise as you were a few years ago I'm de- I spend much of my attention now on my 86 year old mother I'm her only living relative and uh, she had a stroke two years ago so I had to spend a lot of time tending to her and also as she enters the act five of her life seeing that that's uh, a sign of what I have to await me uh, and what my loved ones have too including my wife so dealing with old age on a moment by moment basis I don't want to go and get a self-help book or new age book I want to get King Lear and you know, King Lear, which had a certain meaning for me when I was 19, obviously has grown as I have. And if I look at my mother and probably at the person I am going to be and maybe my wife too, 20 years from now, and see the rage at the senselessness, um, the, the senselessness of the world, um, the way in which um, Goneril and Regan don't know what to do with this father, and Cordelia, who does know what to do with him, um, isn't in a position to do it. And everything I think that one needs to know about old age is uh, in King Lear. Uh, recently, I reread a Passage to India, which I'd, I'd read maybe two or three times, never enjoyed. And suddenly, in this particular moment, when dealing with the other is the urgent theme before pretty much the whole planet, um, E.M. Forster's almost qualified uh, skepticism and, and moderation seemed ideal to me and was telling me much more I felt than I could get from the New York Times or, or The Economist. And so I suppose, you know, just turning to what I regard as some of the wisest minds who spent their lifetimes addressing these themes, um, never is time wasted. You know, to go back to Klinglea, I was just thinking, actually, when I was in the Zen temple, when I began writing, and even now, I think part of the beauty of writing is being able to make sense of the world. But I also realize as I get older that the large part of the beauty of writing and getting to be a writer is just sitting amidst the senselessness. You know, so much of the world is the big book of Job. You can't make sense of it, and, and there is no cause and effect. But just as a writer sitting for hours at a desk and then turning to things like King Lear, help you to see that it was ever thus and maybe save you from self-pity or all the
1: chaos that you were talking about? Well, I, I I was thinking about so many things as you were speaking and King Lear um, as an example um It's so amazing to me for you to to mention now, because I remember a conversation I had a few years back with Harold Bloom, when I was talking to him about death and dying, and he immediately said, no, give me King Lear. And that is what he turned to. And imaginative literature felt to him the best preparation, in, in a way very closely related to to both Socrates as related by by Plato or Montaigne, that philosophy in a way is a way for us to learn how to die, which literature um, seems for those of us who believe that it may be possible to teach us in advance, if such a thing can be learned, how to face that final act, as you call it.
0: And that is the exact reason why Harold Bloom is one of the books. You know, we have very little space for books in our apartment. That's one of the books that is always there. And he's one of my constant friends from afar. And one of the things I love about him is just his... um, apologetic passion for literature, as you said, and just as you were saying, I believe when he was going through a depression in his life, he turned to Emerson, and Emerson was in fact his therapist, his rabbi, his priest, and the person who talked him out of um, the darkness. So um, yes to to everything um, that, that you, you were just saying, and I was about to say something else, but perhaps it will, it well, will come he, back to me, he, actually he... something more important, but I got so excited with that. Harold bloom but, but this um, this
1: this happens you know um as you and i I think know well i i i love I love the line of of Lawrence Stern when he says that digression is the sunshine of narrative when one sort of you know gets lost in 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 the quagmire of a of a conversation and sort of forgets what maybe the main thread was, perhaps just to realize that there there really is no main thread, and that in a way literature helps us figure out that there's so many um, and it teaches us in some way to imagine different futures and I think yes, that I'm um, and, and sorry to butt in but no. thanks, thanks to your digression I remember what oh, I well was isn't say, that yes, good that um, I remember when I first had that black
0: penguin copy of Montaigne and reading, as you said, that philosophy is about learning how to die. And then I remember in more recent times, realizing that really the nub of it for so many of us, and you know this better than I, is that philosophy and writing and living are about learning how to see everyone you love die. The death is hardest on the living. And of course the th- you and I facing the prospect of death—that's that's no picnic. But for me, I think at this point, it's much more scary to imagine my wife dying, or to imagine my wife having Alzheimer's, or being right next to me and unable to communicate with me. And I think that would be a living death. That in fact, um, again, I would, as you said, I would turn to literature to guide me through. But um, even even more harrowing than the one that Montaigne was uh, talking
1: about. So so literature in this um in this instance pico is um a form of 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 heightened consolation
0: yes and and guidance and friendship and um again if i were uh, deep in a love affair uh i who better to turn to it than Proust? And in fact if i were going to a zen monastery again and i wanted to know what Buddhism was about, which is to say the tricks the mind plays and how to clean the mind and clear it of its uh, distortions and impurities, uh, Proust would be the ideal. Um, consolation, as you said, but also inspiration and, and guide. So I've been making my very slow way to Proust in English, but the last 18 years. And I'm only halfway through, but he's regularly on my terrace too. And I, again, I couldn't think of a, um, a richer conversationalist. And he, partly, he's so funny some of the time, and then he's so wise when he's not being
1: funny. I I love that notion of um, because I can visualize it, Pico. I've I've never been to your your home in in uh, Japan, but I somehow can visualize your terrace. And I can visualize... You, you
0: can, because we, you know, we've been friends for 20 years and we've seen each other in so many different settings. Yes, you know exactly <laughs> what I'm doing and how I'm sitting and probably what I'm reading on well, that terrace. It, and it, I meant, starting it, with Harold Bloom, I'm so glad you invoked
1: him. Well, it's so magnificent to, uh, to, to, to hear you say, you will find Proust on my terrace, and then to hear also that, you know, when I use the word consolation, you you added to it, um, yes, consolation perhaps, but also clarity. And I think that one of the the virtues of literature, and I I would say one of the virtues of poetry in particular, is that decantation, is uh, like decanting wine, um, the the precision of, of poetry when it is heightened language clarifies, clarifies perhaps in in helping us with the bombardment you were talking about earlier of our lives now, which we can't get away from, but we can maybe find a palliative for. Yes, exactly.
0: And in fact, one of the things I was sharing with the, the students this last weekend was the recent poems of W.S. Merwin, whom I think you know well, and who, as you know, at the age of 85 is losing his sight. He's just lost his wife. He's kind of coming and going in his consciousness. He's at times a a young boy again, according to his poems. But there's that telecid clarity of um, the distilled wisdom of a man who has read and translated and traveled across all the great traditions for 70 years now. And he writes short poems with no punctuation that cut to the core. And as you say, um, they're yeah, they're like silver music in the midst of the cacophony of the world. And one of my great touchstones passed away just a few months ago. Well, one of them passed away, Leonard Cohen, a few months ago, the master of depthless clarity. But the other was Derek Walcott. And you and I were talking at the beginning of this conversation about having different cultures inside us. And I remember through my life when I thought about uh, half of myself being in England and half of myself being in Asia and wondering how to make a marriage between them, whom do I turn to but Derek Walcott, whose poetry manages wonderfully to affirm both sides of his heritage at the same time and actually to see how each can enrich the other rather than looking at it as as simply a transit zone or a nowhere place or a contest between colonizer and colonized he he allows the africa in him and the europe in him to
1: turn into something greater than both one plus one equals three in his work so um Merwin and and uh, Leonard Cohen and perhaps Derek Walcott. Um, Merwin, what you know? I he took my phone call a few months back, and it was just magnificent to to talk to him. And indeed, he can't see, but in another way, of course, he can see. And he sees everything, yes. Yes, and and, and
0: he sees all the I guessing um, I wish I will listen to that call now, but I'm guessing he can see all the seven ages of man, all the phases of his life at once at this point in his eighties.
1: I, I imagine as much was there a, a, a poem in particular that you had your students in the monastery read, or do you do you recall? I read to them one poem called The Present. Uh,
0: the present clearly referring to this moment as well as to the gift, and then I gave them
1: maybe four poems from his most recent book, partly because God- even as Godenton. everything is fading away, there's songs of gratitude and praise and discovery. As I say at the end
0: of his, you know, you with your parents were elderly, and my mother's elderly, and we watch our parents return to a second childhood. But W. S. Merwin, in his second childhood, has found this kind of Wordsworthian excitement and freshness that as if he's stepping into the garden for the first time and that he's he's walking through eden as a young boy but implicitly with the wisdom he's gathered over 80 years and it's not like anything else i've read so it's very much the the poems of his last collection that i wanted to share with them i love the way through the flames you know because the theme of this uh, this workshop was facing the flames, and as you've been saying, literature to me is the way to stare down the flames.
1: Well, uh, I I love that book of Merwin Garden Times uh, and uh, Garden Time, and I I read a poem to him, and he he comment commented beautifully on it. You know, the other person um, before we we turn to Leonard Cohen, who who we lost and who also took a call uh, some months ago, was John Berger. And I I read to him a couple of poems, and his reaction, Pico, was extraordinary. I I think I read him a Mary Oliver poem, and he said, Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And then I said, Can I reread it to you? And he said, Please do. And then his second reaction was, Yes, yes, yes. A, a, a kind of incantation, and you, you know, it, it, it felt to me as though this was born, this was what he needed. And these and, he, he, and, I'm so, and this must have been in the last months of his life. Well, it was the day after our current president in the United States was elected. Um, I asked him on that day if he was surprised, and he said not at all. And he died two months later. I think I exactly. Called, I was going to say just on January. Second, or second, or, second, or third, or something like that. And I called him on the 9th and um oh, i'm
0: so glad you're getting these great spirits
1: while they 're with us well we, we we must you know i i yes. feel yes. i mean I feel that one incredible sadness I have um which um I want to talk to you about because you can you can say something about him is never to have had the chance the opportunity and and um the the the, the, the great um gift of of speaking with Leonard Cohen. I kept saying because I'm always asked you know who would I like to talk to and I always say I I I used to say I want to talk to Leonard Cohen before I die and I remember the person who interviewed me saying before you die and I said yes I, I think that's the right way to put it and and then lo and behold Leonard Cohen died and you 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 became I mean would it be correct of me to say that you became friends
0: I, yes, I think so, um, because he was hurt so open in his friendship. And of course, um, you gave the answer that I think so many people in the world would have given. Uh, and um, yes, and partly because he did such a good job of living privately in the middle of Los Angeles. He had this homemade life whereby in the city of freeways, he just lived on foot. His son was nearby, his daughter was nearby, his manager was down the street. But to To go back to the heart of your longing to talk to him, I would say he was the most articulate writer I've ever met, even as he had a greater gift for silence than anybody I've met without question. And his name in the, the monastery, the name his monk gave him was Jikan, which can be translated in many ways. But one of those ways is the silence between two thoughts. And I think actually he that's a perfect description of Leonard Cohen. He was a silence between two thoughts, and even though so eloquent and droll and poetic and able to string together beautiful sentences that brought together the highest kind of diction with the talk of the streets, I think he was always most quiet and most happy being quiet. And sometimes when I would visit him, and this was the case with many of his visitors, he would take out a chair and lead me to his very, very small garden, facing this quiet residential street in a very broken, beat-up part of Los Angeles. So we'd sit in front of his tiny flower bed and say not a word. We'd just sit there in silence. And I think his five years as a monk had shown him that you can often share more in silence than in speech. And then indeed, the sign of a friend is that uh, you don't have to say very much to that friend. And I remember the first time I was sitting there and maybe 20 minutes had passed and I thought, well, maybe this, maybe this silence is a gentle hint. So I said to him, "Um, oh, you must be busy. I should let you go. And he looked at me with this beseeching intensity that he had and he said, please, don't go. And I realized that he was, extending again the invitation to silence rather than um, to defacing the silence with whatever babble I might have offered otherwise. Goodness. Um. So, so had you talked to him, it might have been silent communion, and you would have felt more replete than if you'd been chattering away.
1: It's extraordinary. I mean, I, I... I, I in a, in a way, the question I have on on the tip of my tongue is you've answered it, which which is what do you miss most about him? I mean, when people leave us, they as you said, it's it's much harder for the people that remain because they remain and you, insofar that the you is the you that is gone, is gone. Um, and so when, when, one remembers li- literally putting the members back together when one recalls someone, and sometimes it's a fragrance that we miss, sometimes it's a, a a way of speaking or looking and in the case of of Cohen, it may have been his silence, but I'm wondering if something else comes to your mind when you when you think about leonard Cohen again, that's
0: such a beautiful question. And the first things that would come to mind would be depth and graciousness and the gift of not taking himself seriously, but taking many things in life very seriously indeed. I think, of course, the grace of any artist is that all of us who love Leonard Cohen or Derek Walcott or John Berger are still able to talk to them constantly and so yet Leonard Cohen is still offering his bottomless verses um, on YouTube and in many other forms to us and um, that will be inexhaustible but I think on the most selfish level I miss the fact that I could share many things with him that I felt uh, I couldn't share with so many other friends uh, because he had esoteric interests which sometimes happened to rhyme with my own I would find a book of love poems from the sixth Dalai Lama which are very sensuous poems about the beautiful girls of Lhasa which may also essentially be metaphors for his love of spiritual notions or whatever but when I find poems like that I would send them to Leonard and know that there was somebody there who would appreciate them. It was the very last email I sent him, I was emailing him after his harrowing last album came out just three weeks before his death. And I found a poem by Basho, which was, This road, no one on it as autumn ends. Just that. This road, no one on it as autumn ends. And of course, I knew he was nearing death and I knew he was interested in haiku and I knew that he was interested in being invisible. Um, but beyond all that, when I found a haunting simple poem like that, I thought, well, there's one person in the world who might be happy to receive it by, um, by email. And now I don't have such a person, I don't think. So in that very trivial way, um, I, I miss the, the sense of his receptive... Presence uh, on the other end of an email or a telephone or um, a, a car visit, uh, ready to take in the um, the drollery and the beauty of the world.
1: That's such um, an exquisite story, Pico, and it's such an exquisite poem of Basho. It made me also think, of course, of of Merwin and of of Garden Time and. And of, yes. And of you know, of Rilke and of so many other poets who who, in some way, are speaking to us about farewell, um, they, are, yes. they are saying um, sometimes out of anger, but mostly out of a sense of of belonging to a, a larger a larger part of, of, of the world. They're just saying, in a sense, thank you," and in a sense, goodbye and um uh, and 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 Cohen when he when when he lost um his muse wrote to her wrote an, a, a letter saying yes. i will join you soon
0: yes yes exactly and then a few weeks after that letter um delivered this desolate extraordinary album which was more or less saying goodbye to the world and saying goodbye to everything he might have hoped for
1: you know the other p- the other person I, I I really want to talk to before I die, is Tom Waits. Another person I really would so love to 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 have either on a call or on a stage, whatever stage it might be. I remember a a story that um, Elizabeth Gilbert, who also took a call here.
0: I was thinking of her when you mentioned Tom Waits. Well,
1: you know. that TED talk in which she invokes him, yes. Yes, and and that wonderful profile she did of him. I think in in GQ, wonderful profile, which which just shows her her deep seriousness um, against uh, whatever some people might think. Um, And I... Remember this one moment where she's driving with Tom Waits in Los Angeles and she inquires how come there was seven or eight years between two albums and Tom Waits responds saying, I got stuck in a traffic jam.
0: <laughs> he, and he, like Leonard, had the gift of, as you just showed us, um, Sounding as if he's already on the far side of the grave, he he sounded posthumous much of his life, which gives an added wisdom and depth to all his pronouncements. But I know just what you mean. Uh, I think I heard an interview of his on Fresh Air once, and unlike any other interview I've heard on that program, nothing he said was uh, predictable. It all seemed to come from a different dimension. And yes. Um, He's, he's probably as impenetrable, maybe more impenetrable even than Planet Kevin. So please get him on this I, I, elephant.
1: I, I'm going. To, I'm going to try. I'm going to try as as much as you know. I I try and I also sometimes. Uh, Uh, Annoyingly, just simply don't don't give up. Um, I I just really, I I, there are people I really want to talk to because I feel that um, talking to them, which is something I love doing, uh, is is a way of on, on. of of learning something new, I, I I always remember, you know, what it feels like to speak to you, or what it feels like to speak to Jan Morris, or what it feels like to talk to Adam Phillips, who you know beautifully says that when we talk to each other, things fall out of our pockets. And that, <laughs> that is beautiful, yes. And, and, you know, with Jan, Jan also, you know, is someone I always long to talk to. And when we had this phone call together, she, she, you know, told such wonderful stories and played some music on her phono- phonograph, as she called it which was just magnificent. Speaking of Jan, who I know is someone we, we both admire uh, uh, very much, um, are you traveling a lot these days?
0: I'm, I'm not, uh, no, um, I don't get the chance to, and I'm very happy not to. I think my big adventures are at my desk. But as you were just talking about Jan, I was really thinking she's zest incarnate with a big C, or as she would say, um, but mixed with discernment. And I was telling a friend not so long ago that every now and then if I'm reading The Guardian or the New York Times book review, and I see a piece that's really ebullient and has the energy and excitement of uh, a 19-year-old prodigy. I know it's written by 90-year-old um, Jan, who, as I said, 90 sounds like she's 19 because she's never lost that uh, enthusiasm for, for the world and everything in it. Um, so, you... I, so she, she is going to c- continue travelling to her last day and I, I, I admire her enthusiasm because I'm actually more a stay at home than she is and I'm quite happy never to leave my little apartment in Japan.
1: But but you but you st- you haven't lost your enthusiasm for for other places. You I think you you mentioned to me that you, you traveled to Korea and you traveled to Iran and you've 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 made trips Uh, since we've seen each other, that are new trips for you. (laughs)
0: Well, yes, I went to North Korea, though in fact I had been there 25 years before, but yes, because I'm lucky enough to spend time in California and Japan, which are both very pleasant, comfortable, protected places. On the rare times when I do travel, I want to go to somewhere as different as possible from the places I know and North Korea is usually the leader in that. In certain ways it's similar to Japan but in so many ways it's like another planet. So I hadn't been there for a quarter of a century and I went back there a couple of years ago uh, to look at its film industry because of course its previous leader Kim Jong-il had the largest film library in the world. They say 20,000 titles in his own house. And was such an aficionado of cinema that he famously kidnapped the leading actress and the leading director from South Korea in order to boost his own film industry. So I was wandering around the I think it might be the largest film studio in the world in Pyongyang, North Korea, much larger than any that I'm aware of in Los Angeles. And um, I and my little group got to see North Korean films screened for us by North Korean directors who disconcertingly at the end of the screening would turn to us and through a translator say, What's wrong film? <laughs> what, what, we were all sensible enough to keep quiet.
1: What did they say?
0: What's wrong with my film? What don't you like about my film?
1: Oh, goodness um, me.
0: But it's, it's easy enough to make a blunder in North Korea without stepping into that one, so we were all tactfully silent.
1: Did you, did you see by any chance Werner Herzog's film Lo and Behold? I'm dying to see that about the internet. Yes, about the internet, and I mean, it, it, I think it, it may speak to you. But there's also a moment in it, um, in North Korea. Um, oh, really? Yes. So, so I think f- th- there may be something there, really, for you to see. I'd be very curious um, to to hear to hear what you he, he what you what you feel about 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 seeing about seeing that particular film of of Werner's because it also, quite apart from North Korea, is very concerned by what happens when we are so taken over by other things that distract us from the possibility of being attentive. Pico, in in closing, um, I know that you and I in the past spoke Spoke about Graham Greene, uh, and I know how much he he mattered to you, and probably still matters to you. There's one line of his that is haunting me at this moment, um, and in, there's nobody I, I I know in this world uh, who I would want a reaction to this line more from than from you, and it's a very 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 short line. Um, I think I know what's coming, but let me see if I'm right. Okay. Um, the first word is there. There's a virtue in slowness which we have lost.
0: My goodness. I, I, I don't even remember that line, and it takes me back, and I wouldn't instantly have ascribed it to so, so, I, so,
1: so, what line were you thinking?
0: I was thinking of, so I just three weeks ago reread The Power and the Glory for maybe the ninth time, uh, and I didn't enjoy it the first time. I was forced to read it in school in England, but nowadays, I I do get a lot from it. And I was sure you were going to read the very short line at the core of that, which is hate is just a failure of imagination. Because, you know, as we survey our nation or the world right now, and everyone wondering how they can empathize to use a fashionable verb, with somebody radically different from themselves. Um, he he had it a million times over one of his great gifts, I think, was for extending understanding and then compassion to precisely the guys who seem like the villains in his stories and the ones that he doesn't sympathize with, um, because he knew that the imagination's obligation was to put itself in the being um and the life of somebody radically different from himself. Somebody was asking me recently about the cultural appropriation and a part of me thought I thought that was what imagination was meant to be. You know, that the beauty of Shakespeare is he writes as a woman and he writes as a fellow and he writes as every possible being. But um, the, and that, the, that brings the, the, us
1: that, that brings that brings as us you
0: probably remember that the line hate is the failure of it's just a failure of imagination comes um, there's a prison scene in the power and the glory and the whiskey priest this very depraved character who rises to moments of kindness that would put a saint to shame is in prison for a night and he says the prison is a a vision of the world and in one corner a couple is making love elsewhere people are groaning they're reaching out for one another they're consulting the bible everything is happening there and uh and he says that as soon as you visualize a woman or a man carefully as soon as you see the the turn of their mouth or the way their nose wrinkles as soon as you see um what the lobe of their ear looks like it's impossible to hate them Uh, and i you know, without sentimentalizing him, I think that was exactly the creed by which he lived by, and one of the blessings he has to offer to us in the year 2017, maybe more even than when he wrote it. Um, know, but I'm so grateful to you for shining the light on a sentence of his uh, I I've never encountered consciously.
1: Um, it, well, I, I, I think in, in many ways uh, the... Y- Your your life experience in a way elucidates that that sentence you haven't encountered, and you know that line you mentioned of of Graham Greene about hate, brings me back also to my my rediscovery now of James Baldwin, who also in so many ways is talking about the failure of imagination. And I don't know if you've seen this film that uh, is has came out about six months ago called I. I... I am. Not, you must. I am not your Negro. It is really extraordinary. And seeing Baldwin, um, uh, I think. I think it will inspire you in in a very very deep way. I mean, of of Graham Greene, you know, there's so many sentences that I was thinking about. And when you and I spoke about him many years ago, um, I I know that in in some way he. He was a spokesperson for you of so many feelings, uh, of so many feelings that someone else can express, and then you can, you you can appropriate them as it were, and they become your own with your own life and with what you know best, and with what has been transformed in your in your soul. But um, Pico, I, I I have to say it it's it's such a pleasure pleasure to talk to you. It it gives me such a desire to both slow down and to somehow look for a terrace.
0: <laughs> it's such a delight, Paul. It reminds me how long it's been, and it also reminds me that if I and you are sitting in a little garden, I wouldn't want to share silence. I'd want to share all the, the presences and sentences you've been invoking, and I'm so glad we end with James Baldwin, because he's, I think, in some ways the spiritual godfather to our common friend and the writer that we both admire also, Richard Rodriguez, who, um, who is such a sui generous character, but if there's one writer who's similar to him, it's probably James Baldwin. But it's a real pleasure to,
1: to talk to you. And thank it's you a for real, real time. pleasure to talk to you, and you just gave me two thoughts. Um, well, not, two thoughts, uh, uh, one of them being a longing I have, which which is not uh, expressed by what you just said. I would like to, on the contrary, Pico, sit in the garden with you or on a terrace someday and try out silence. Um, so that is one thought. The other thought is, I think that at some point in the near future, I should have a phone call with Richard Rodriguez.
0: Don't be disappointing, we know.
1: Well, Pico, it's been a real pleasure. And take good care of yourself and see you somewhere in between.
0: I hope so. Thank you so much, Paul.
1: Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Criminal Broads is a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. And I'm the host, Tori Telfer. I'm a true crime writer who started Criminal Broads after realizing that I was uncovering far too many out of control and terrifying stories about criminal women to fit in a single book. So, if you like stories about female cult leaders, con women, women who undergo (laughs) seven sessions of plastic surgery to avoid arrest for 14 years and 11 months. Uh, women who hung out with Bonnie and Clyde Or serious speculation about the deranged theory That Jack the Ripper was actually a woman I think you'll like this podcast Look for Criminal Broads on your favorite podcast listening app Or follow along at instagram.com criminalbroads Where I post a lot of photos So you can look deep into the eyes of some of the murderesses We'll be talking about See you there Take
0: it Break it Thank you.